Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this latest episode of the First Word Pandemic Podcast. My name is Alex, and I'm here with my co-host, Mike. And we are live from our homes, quarantined like the rest of the world. Uh, No, it's been a long time since we've recorded an episode, and up until roughly two weeks ago, um, both Mike and I had a very busy first few months of this year between Sundance and Berlin Alley for me. And Mike, I know you've been flying around doing a lot of work with your documentary, and it's just mm-hmm. been very intense, and uh, we we unfortunately have been uh, remiss in recording any actual podcasts, and that's very sad. But at the same time, um, now the, the moment has presented itself in both a tragic and uh, unfortunate way, but also uh, the cheesy, hey, we're home and have nothing to do, <laughs> so let's record a podcast way. So here we are. Um, so yeah, thanks for joining me, Mike. How are you? Well, I'm doing pretty well, all things considered. I mean, I, I, I'm currently holed up in the basement of my house, which I'm really, I'm really happy because since the last time we talked, I've moved to an oh, actual me, house. Me too, Mike, me too. But not yeah. to a house, but yeah. Well, yeah. But I moved to a house and I had this neighbor uh, before that was um, pretty noisy, uh, to say the least, and... Uh, it was a 90-unit building, and so I'm thinking about occasionally how miserable I'd be isolated in my condo apartment, as as great as it was, during all this craziness and having to deal with a neighbor that I can hear all day and 90 other units of people touching things in the building. And just like, now I get to just relax in my house with my dogs and my wife and stay away from everybody which is pretty much what I'd like to do every day anyway. Now I just have a, a purpose for yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. I'm, you're lucky in that you actually have that. I'm still stuck in a unit, thank you. <laughs> uh, but no, I'm, I'm, uh, my other feeling too is that I've always, I've always worked from home anyway, and I know it's a, a huge struggle and change for a lot of people in the world, but for me I'm like, well, everything is kind of the same way as it was before. I just go out even less now. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I, I won't say that I have all the time in the world to do everything because I'm still working every day. I'm still keeping the site updated every day. There's actually trailers and things I want to post. And like everyone, I kind of need to keep the work going. Um, but at the same time, I notice there's a huge kind of, um, I don't want to say panic, but an anxiety like conquering the world in addition to the virus that is... Uh, making everyone just kind of scatterbrained and fearful and, and anxious about everything in a way that um, the traffic on first showing dropped majorly last week in a way where I thought people would say, okay, I'm excited about movies coming up to watch at home and I want to read about stuff. I want to keep my mind. But it's just, I've read people on Twitter saying they, they can't go 10 minutes without their mind bouncing around to something. And that they're just, they just, they can't watch a movie because they're constantly thinking about different things left and right. Um, and that that's kind of the sense I've got in addition to the cinemas being shut down and no one really looking forward to anything in the future because we have no idea what the future is. Uh, there's this kind of weird anxiety to it, um, which is kind of what brings us to this podcast because, um, through all this, this virus mania, I, uh, everyone has been watching all these virus films and I thought, Hey Mike, let's, let's chat about one of them. And, um, before well, we get that, into well, what, yeah, before we get into it. I do want to. I'll, I'll put this on the record for the people listening. For the ten to, people to, listening, thank you for listening. Ten people, continue <laughs> to go off of what you were saying. I, I do feel 
like I'm really fortunate, and so are you, that we already have a um, we already have a, a a passion that requires being alone at home, just watching movies, and movies don't go away, right? They live forever um, as long as you have a way of watching it. Um, and I think I think the the key really for for keeping things in perspective on all this is is like. There's a lot of people, I think about it sometimes, that just like, they don't know what the fuck to do in their house with no yeah. place to go. And I, I feel bad sometimes. Like, I'm not so worried about, I, I get these random moments of like concern about the, the virus itself when I read a story and I see like the worst case scenario and my mind can wander. But like the vast majority of the time I spend is just being curious about what's going on and how other countries are reacting to it and this and that. But then I always dive back into this concern for like people who uh, can't afford to lose their job or like the people who have uh, problems at home and now ha have to face that front on and they weren't ready to. Or just like, I don't know, that's where I get anxiety is thinking about just a lot of like these other people who aren't even going to get sick, but are their lives are going to get ruined by this thing. And yeah, yeah, so yeah. not to bring things on to, to a downer, but like, I mean, I, I think it's important to keep everything in perspective when you look at film Twitter and how much fun it is right now. I mean, like, it, it's really, it's really enjoyable to be part of a community in which everybody can just be at home and start to share their ideas, their thoughts, the, the movies they want to watch. People come to me, they're like, what movies should I watch? I have nothing to do. I need to watch movies. And I have my top 20 list of last year. I have my like top 25 all time. I have just my brain is an encyclopedia of movies. And I like, I feel very helpful for people right now. But <laughs> I, at the same time, it's like, I also feel like uh, whenever something's going on in the world, there's always a movie or two to, to, to put in to sort of, just see how the this has always been there. Like we we always knew what was going to happen because some filmmaker yeah. already told it. Whether you go to the farthest extreme with like Waterworld, or you go <laughs> to like the, just a kind of hyper realism with Contagion, I, you know, Children of Men. Like there's there was some shit the other the other day where some guy was going off about all these things happening with this disease and he was probably exaggerating and hyper hyper extrapolating data and shit and said that some people are some of the men are losing fertility from it and and i, and I start thinking about children of men mm -hmm. and it's like there's a movie for everything yeah, and, yeah. and so when you said yeah. outbreak i was like of course i mean duh you know everybody's talking about contagion and contagion is probably the most apt and you know it exists because scientists and filmmakers often fall under this sort of same umbrella of getting the word out and filmmakers, if they get interest in a topic uh, that's scientifically backed, then that issue will probably come up at some later point, right? It's just like filmmakers don't just make shit in a vacuum and it just happens to be right. Like he consulted with scientists and pandemic experts and virologists to get all this stuff right, but also to make sure that he's telling a story that, uh, you know, feels real. And the reason why it feels real is because you talk to the same people who are dealing with the shit right now. But I would even say that probably applies to a lot of different things, like say say volcano movies. Like if there was a massive volcano, all of a sudden everyone would go back and like watch volcano and um, what is it? Yeah. Uh, what, what's the other? Not daylight. <laughs> the other. 
Yeah, don't they speak? Like all these things would be like, wow, it's so accurate. But actually, I, I want to say that one of the reasons I chose Outbreak too was also just because it's one of my favorites. I've I I've been rewatching a lot. I think a lot of people have uh, of the virus movies. I, I rewatched the Andromeda Strain, which is the '70s one, um, and I rewatched Twelve Monkeys, and I rewatched Contagion. Um, and you know, by the time I got around to watching Outbreak, which I've watched a lot when I was younger, I was like, I still just love this movie. <laughs> and yeah, we can, we can, and I want to talk about Contagion for, you know, a couple minutes before we get into Outbreak, but just, yeah, of course we can talk about Contagion, but Contagion is almost like, it's, you, you messaged me, um, last week, I think it was after watching you like, Contagion is a documentary now. And that's the scary thing about Contagion to me is the Outbreak is more of a Hollywood movie with like a uh, big bang kind of feeling to it with, you know, helicopter chases and, you know, sh- like snazzy Hollywood stuff. Whereas Contagion is as close to a documentary as you can get uh, in terms of actually portraying and showing the intricacy of it. And that's what Soderbergh kind of has drifted into in these last few years. Even um, his money one from last year, what I forget the name right now, but um, uh, uh, that one too. And even like the informant as well is also kind of, documentary-ish like it's like this re- hyper realism mm-hmm. that makes it feel less like a narrative that we're familiar with from hollywood and more of like a soderbergh doing his thing which is kind of commenting on the real world through his cinema nowadays um and i like contagion a lot for that reality of it for uh i think so when i first watched contagion i wasn't the biggest fan of it i thought i was kind of just dry and and a little boring and it kind of just ended on this weird note and rewatching it now in the context of this virus i actually like it hit me harder which i think it does for everyone but also in the reality that that's exactly what happens in it like there's this point you get to in contagion where like there's almost just like all hope is gone and i think it's right around when um Jude Law is walking down the street in his badass homemade uh, uh, hazmat thing, yeah. his bubble suit, and he and, and next thing you know, it's just like cuts to like 124 days later, and you're like, oh my god, wait, what? And the, and basically, he, you know, Matt Damon's just sitting at home with his his daughter still, and you're like, holy crap! And then that's kind of what connects to me now is I'm like, that's basically what we're dealing with now is that it's this intense hour by hour moment when it first starts and now that we're in the thick of it and this goes more for i would say europe and america right now than maybe asia but just now we're in the thick of it it's just this kind of like you just wait and pray and hope and every day is no longer an hour by hour thing but it's a day by day thing of when are they going to have a vaccine when are things going to get better when are the tides going to turn um right right and and anyway that that's Contagion. I mean, you probably feel the same way as I do now, Mike. Right? That it's 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 so much more. I feel like it's an educational film now for everyone to watch and to learn more about it. Even though it is a movie, and I I'm glad no one is making that case, but that it is based so much on reality and science, as you said. They've consulted these people. That it is, it is like I feel like watching it now is much more of an educational way of showing us what we're going through rather than watching it through that lens of entertainment as it once was up until... Well, I mean, that's the thing. Contagion is a movie that is effectively uh, shouting from the rooftops, pay attention, right? It's not not designed to... I mean, Soderbergh's movies, especially during that phase, right, where he was making, like, Haywire and... I don't know. He's still in that phase, I guess. But where he's sort of... That's what I'm saying, yeah. (laughs) But it's like a post-Oceans phase, right, where he's making much more realistic 
movies or or hyper real where it's not always about something that we are familiar with but it it's filmed in that way right like the colors are are a little almost like documentary color it's not super cinematic looking uh it, and he doesn't go for big vast grand shots it's just things are happening and let's follow the things story first the rest later and um and it's funny because now having finished outbreak again which is a movie i've watched Hundreds. I mean, hundreds of times. Yeah, yeah. Me I, I mean, this is one of those movies I grew up on. I grew up on me Jurassic too, too, Park. Too. I grew up on uh, Twister. I grew up on Outbreak just as much as those two. You don't realize it, and but but Outbreak is like ingrained in my DNA, and yeah. I, I could recite the whole movie. I really could. <laughs> it's airborne. Yeah. Still, yeah, I can't. Yeah, it's funny because you know the moments that always stood out to me. Uh, which we'll get into, um, that I remember the most, pretty much come to mind instantly whenever there's any sort of global outbreak, whether it's Ebola in the West African region or whether it's this taking over the whole globe. But for some reason, like today, I rewatched it just to kind of get ready again for this. And I, I, I forgot how the third act is, it's like a, military action movie with a uh, 25 feet off the ground uh two on one yeah. helicopter chase yeah. shooting missiles and like and and then there's like another like the helicopter stunts are insane in this movie yeah, yeah <laughs> we, get to, we will talk about the movie uh and the things that happen in it but my goodness i i am trying in my head to think of a movie with better helicopter stunts like mission impossible has one of the best helicopter stunt scenes yeah, of all time. the recent mission impossible but... well yeah the recent one actually yeah i was thinking about the first one though uh, where they fly through oh a right 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 that one too yeah i mean true. you know but like this movie has three separate helicopter sequences that are pretty dramatic. One of which where he, Dustin Hoffman jumps off the helicopter onto a ship. One where yeah. they are having a one, one chase through, uh, you know, a Canyon or whatever, uh, in a forest. And then, and then essentially this one moment where the helicopter is flying on top of a truck, like five feet above a truck. Oh yeah. That was cool. That was cool. Cause he was escaping the radar, man. I always I would love to ask Wolfgang Peterson, you know, what what came first? Action helicopter chase sequences or, you know, uh super super intense viral outbreaks. Of course, the movie itself is only exists because of the book that it's based on, right? Uh, Hot Zone. But I, I I think that movie expands a little heavily on what Hot Zone was about. What do you mean? Did you ever see Hot or have you heard of Hot Zone? Uh no, I the book no, I I don't. So so uh, you know this might be news to other people too, but have you have you noticed the parallels narratively or, or the way the story unfolds between Jurassic Park and Outbreak? It's there. Like they feel well, like similar movies, not just because they came a couple of years apart, but they just feel narratively like related. Okay. <laughs> okay. Part of that is because Michael Crichton wrote both books. Oh, that's what I thought, but it's not. Uh, he's not credited oh, wait, I thought, for Hot Zone. I thought Zone, Michael no? Crichton. I thought Michael Crichton. I thought this too, Mike, because actually, wait. no. The strangest thing is that Michael no, Crichton wait. wrote the book that um, the, wait, the no, Andromeda no, no, no. Strain is based on. Richard Preston 
wrote. Yeah, different guy. That's but that was the thing. I thought it was the same thing too. But uh, he wrote. Crichton wrote the the Andromeda Strain book. Ah, yes. Which is okay. similar in terms of the unfolding of events that I would say is similar to Contagion, but uh, but less so Outbreak. But I know your point, which is almost actually what I was going to say to what you were saying, which is that. Outbreak is nonetheless uh, uh, representative of the 90s action movies, which is the same era as Jurassic Park, which is the same era as all these movies, which is that there is a certain narrative unfolding to them and a certain um, action requirement to them, which is usually military or based on some military militaristic feeling, kind of like Jurassic Park with some elements of it. But that is a part of it for sure. And that I think that is well, a major part of I had, it's amazing that until this fucking moment right now, I've always just been under the impression that Michael Crichton wrote Hot Zone and that this movie was a direct adaptation of it. And now I just do five seconds of Googling and discover that that's not the case. That in 1993, I, I read the book because my, uh, because my dad, who was, you know, in medicine and, and that's a whole nother story, but, you know, in medicine, especially significantly in medicine at the government level in the late 90s, had this hot zone copy of the hot zone book, uh, the one with the white cover and the viral, you know, microbe and all this shit like it. And I always remember the cover of that book. And I read it one day and did like a report for school when they asked you to oh, choose your own book. Okay. And I mean, that was I was 13. So, you know, whatever. But um or maybe I was younger than that, but I look it up and I realize that uh, there that 20th Century Fox actually won a bidding war for press for the the author's New Yorker article, and then Warner Brothers made Outbreak to compete with that to to beat them to the punch. I didn't know that, um, and that and that the the the, the book adaptation uh, was originally going to have Wolfgang Peterson as one of the options. He ended up directing Outbreak. Michael Mann and Ridley Scott were all ready to go, and like. Ridley Scott actually signed on to do it. And they had Robert Redford and Jodie Foster. This is all April 1994. And it just never, it never happened. How fascinating. Yeah. They could have had, could have had two of these movies. <laughs> Which is, we're used to that between the Volcano movies and the, yeah. the Asteroid movies and everything. <laughs> um, strange. But it, I mean, I, I, I do... I do want to reiterate that this is a very 90s movie, especially watching it in comparison to um, Contagion, in that, like, one of the clearer things to me watching it again now was how military-focused this is, how how it's less like a, a virus movie and how it's clearly way more about military. Like, the fact that the military comes in and takes control and that, like, a large chunk of the plot is the the feud between the various um people in the military obviously led by dustin hoffman who's kind of sort of in it but uh, but mainly morgan freeman and sutherland as these like military people um mm -hmm. and that's very like we don't see that anymore i think that kind of ended after 2001 and it became less aside from iraq war movies it became less military involvement in things and, and more about it and i think that i think that represents the progress of this movie in that the structure is still uh hey there's a virus and we need to contain it and then the next thing you know the biggest shocking moment is when the military rolls into cedar creek and just shuts down the whole freaking place and is like m under military control which why we're seeing this happen now in america and all over the world it's not as much military it's still police i mean maybe it'll get to that point but 
right now it's still police and local and even in in where i live in berlin there's like no it's self-organized quarantine which maybe it's just because it's only it's everywhere and it's not like one town that they can shut down but that was the biggest glaring thing to me about outbreak watching it now is how how specifically it is a military movie which also references your helicopter points like the fact that they have these giant helicopter action sequences especially in the second half are all military based nonetheless like they have to steal the yeah. chopper go do this thing and then come back and cuba gooding jr is like oh wow he's a perfect pilot like it's all kind of coincidental in this very military way um, well the uh he'd only had 60 hours of training is the funny thing too the the um the, the other thing, let's not forget that when they show the town being uh, overrun by the military quarantine, there's, I shit you not, eight helicopters flying in formation above yeah. it. <laughs> it's like, okay, let's relax. There are now five times as many military personnel here as people in this town. But <laughs> what, I think, what I think is the most interesting thing, just to jump right in on it, of the movie and its, its depiction of how the country would react is you just don't see any uh you don't see any discussion of economics and i think that that's really interesting I, you could not you after what we're going through right now you'll never i don't think you'll ever see a disaster movie again period in which they don't at least allude to an economic collapse i i, I, get, yeah. I just don't think anybody realized how much the global economy would be affected by something like this i mean it's one thing if we get hit by an asteroid, like the four-kilometer-wide kil- four one that's supposed to hit in April. It's not supposed to hit, but it's supposed to fly by. Well, you uh, never it, know. It, yeah, hopefully somebody can flick that thing right our way just to end it. But uh, the, the, um, the, the, the other element of, like, you know, earthquakes or what, other things that just kind of happen unexpectedly, right? That's why you don't see... You don't see disaster movies thinking about that because it's all happening over the course of like a 24 to 48 hour period. And, and to give Outbreak some credit here, you know, the the virus basically kills its host within a couple like days. Two, two and they, days, yeah. Something bleeding like. from their eyeballs before 24 hours are even up. So um, there isn't even that much time to even consider the economic impact. But also I think this movie gives a lot of credit to its time, like you said, this pre-9-11 time in which government and uh, government is kind of like in control or appears to be in control of everything that's happening. And we just sit back and we take that as uh, as the status quo. Like, oh, it's cool. They, they brought the military, so they'll take care of it and it won't leave. And like now, you know, we the media controls the narrative. The media says when the military is going to go in because the media is already ahead of it. You wouldn't have had the 1967 cover-up today, the cover-up in the movie. Like, that that somebody would have leaked that at some point when this outbreak struck. Uh, You can't convince me that only Donald Sutherland and only Morgan Freeman (laughs) know about that thing. There's somebody... you you could argue that maybe there's something like that for real, but not in not in the 2000 plus. You could say, oh, maybe in the 1980s there was an outbreak in an African village and they nuked it and we didn't know. But nowadays, I I agree with you. There's no way that they could do that without someone knowing, yeah, or someone leaking it. I I think the other point to what you're saying, Mike, is that this this movie um, 
that's just a product of its times. Like at the time in the '90s, we weren't so much concerned about what we're concerned about nowadays—the economics and all this. We're, we were more concerned about the, and this is clear in the Andromeda Strain too. We were more concerned about like nukes and are we gonna uh, accidentally or or wrongfully bomb people <laughs> and like will they abuse their power? That was the concern of the moment, and clearly is an evident part of Outbreak as well. Is like it, I and I think Contagion touches upon it briefly in the way it shows how quickly society degrades after the quarantine is at a hundred days. Um, but so far, you're right. No, no movies have really shown the economic breakdown. But also, you, I mean, for Outbreak, you can't forget that it is just one tiny town, and of course, mm-hmm. the town stops working. And everything in the town stops. But if it was beyond the town, maybe they would have commented on that. But, but for the moment, that I think that's just uh, representing. Oh well, they you know they were containing a town, and everything in the town stopped. And the you know the only thing left in the town that was working was the uh, hospital yeah. because it needed to be. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know the uh, the country in the movie should consider itself lucky. Because it had no right to only happen in a small town. I mean, it came through San Francisco. And just by chance, that dude drove to a small little town outside San Francisco to make that sale. Like, if that dude makes the sale, if Patrick Dempsey (laughs) makes the sale in San Francisco, everyone's fucked. Yeah. Well, this... Everyone. This is one of my favorite. And the, the the other thing that's been clear in watching these virus movies is how accurate they are in every single way uh, in portraying the reality of these the spread of it. Is that th- that moment when he drives there and sells it to them? Um, there's this great cut uh, in the scenes where where the, uh, there's some military guy who's like, the chance that it would spread from Africa to America is nil. And then it cuts to him letting the monkey go outside of this town. And I'm like. Yeah, that's exactly how it happens. It's like this this New York Times article going around about how the virus spreads. It's like we we love to think, oh no, it'll never come here. It'll never get to you know, but it but it does. It does. It's that easily gets here. And actually, one of the things I want to talk about going back to the beginning of outbreak was, um, and maybe I just didn't notice this when I was watching it younger as a kid, or I just glossed over it. Is that the monkey? Uh, seems to be the same monkey throughout. So, like in the in the the very very first part of it, the nineteen sixty seven cover up, they they bomb it and then it cuts and shows one of the monkeys running out of the forest away from the bomb. Then it cuts to the next. Well, there's scene, which is, there's four monkeys just for right. for detail. Well, yeah. right. I'm just saying like the like these monkeys or this monkey is part of that. He was part of that original group that had that. He was the yeah, one yeah. who gave it to that town or to that village. Clearly. Clear. Then, then it jumps. I think it's like thirty years later to um, the ne- basically the same town, as far as we know, or similar nearby. And then that same town is obviously overrun with the virus again in Africa. And then it shows a monkey. And then it shows the monkey being captured and taken to America. Now, the strangest thing to me is, I was like thinking, I was like, did this monkey really live another no. 30, 30 years after 1967, and therefore was it literally... And this is what I thought... When I was watching it this time, this is what I thought the context of what they were showing this monkey consistently for, other than it being the source animal, was basically that this one creature was responsible for everything. That it was responsible for the 1967 virus, and it was responsible for the, the later Africa virus, and it was responsible for the Cedar Creek virus. And that's well, what they, there's like, a line. Is that in the... what they were trying to say with this one monkey being the the host for no. forty years of time? Like, I don't know the lifespan of a monkey, but there's the... a line in the movie that addresses that, uh, where they said that uh, 
the host monkey contains the original virus and a mutated newer virus. And both viruses live in that monkey and can therefore infect you with the new one or the original one. Yeah, but I'm saying is it it literally the same monkey? Like, let's call him Monkey Mike, who, who was there in the 60s and also now is alive in the 90s. What is the lifespan of a capuchin monkey? Let's see here. <laughs> what does Wikipedia tell me? Um, well, man. just just it's a capuchin monkey named Betsy. Let's not forget it has a name. You don't have to call it Mike. <laughs> hey, the the girl named it Betsy. It doesn't. It, that was her name. <laughs> well, here uh, a white-headed capuchin monkey. Okay, I'm looking this up now. Yeah, what's the lifespan? It doesn't say uh, capuchin monkey lifespan. Listeners are probably like, "What the fuck, dudes? Stop talking." <laughs> no, they're they're experiencing live. Right. So in the wild, twenty five years is it? Twenty five years. Yeah. Yep. So here's the deal: they show in 1967 the explosion, and then the monkeys emerging. Right. The point is that the monkey who, at least one monkey who had it, is now out of that village and will infect other monkeys. Monkeys are going to die in the jungle and you're never going to see it. And the strain will continue to live in host monkeys that don't die from it because that's how the hosts, right? That's how it works. Uh, and so it was passed just, on to the baby monkey. Yeah, it would have been passed on to other monkeys who, the, or, or, or it would have been passed on to, they would have had a baby monkey and then given it to the baby monkey after it's born. It just keeps going until one of those monkeys comes into contact with a human and then passes it to the human. And then we do our thing, which is to trans uh, to, to globally spread disease. Cause that's what we're good at. Yeah. And this is, this is what I want to go make my, my profound opening statement about outbreak. Our discussion is the way that the film opens is with this great quote uh, from uh, Nobel laureate, Joshua Lederberg. The single biggest threat to man's continued dominance on this planet is the virus. And it's like, okay, I mean, I don't I think the first time or the, all the times I watched this as a kid, this quote never meant anything to me. But now, <laughs> now it's like, oh, damn, yes, yeah, true. And this guy was right 30 years ago. He was right about this quote or whenever he gave this, maybe even longer. But nonetheless, the point then connects to and, and Contagion shows this, too, at the end of the movie is that this one freaking creature who then unleashes this virus on humans is basically the the one creature who has caused a global havoc amongst all of human society. Mm. And that to me is is um I w- I don't want to say beautifully fascinating because it's so devastating to humanity, but at the same time it's like yeah, that's how fragile the balance of humanity can can fall apart in a way. And that this guy's quote at the beginning of Outbreak is so accurate in that one little virus carried by one little animal can bring down the whole human race in a way. Yeah. Um, and it, and it uh, b- before you go, Mike, I just want to say, because I know we talked about this, but I, it makes me think about the War of the Worlds connection, which is that similarly, my interpretation at the end of War of the Worlds, at least in Spielberg's movie, is that um, bacteria kills, or you know, some sort of virus or bacteria kills these aliens, and then it's the same kind of thing. These aliens who were dominating humans because they're way better than us in every way, were also suddenly killed by the tiniest of little thing, and that that's the net, the like I don't want to say the balance of nature, but the the incredibleness of nature, the fact that there is such a great size disparity between this tiniest thing that we can't see is disrupting the entire world right now and changing things completely forever for humanity. 
And that's my opening. Now we continue. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the line that Mar- that uh, Morgan Freeman, of course, the constant, uh, says is they were undone, destroyed after all of man's weapons and devices had failed by the tiniest creatures that God in his wisdom put upon this earth. It's yeah. great. Yeah. I mean, it's a... It's just such a great narrative device, viruses. I mean, you know, it's, it's just, just it, it, it's crazy and it's compelling. But they, but they don't, you know, an outbreak, they don't abuse it, which is what I was worried rewatching it would happen is that they, you know, they make it, they make it seem like all oh, those viruses, other than the fact that the virus and outbreak is much more deadlier and a much more higher or faster pace than what we're currently dealing with and even in contagion, this one is like, it is still accurate in the way it spreads, in the way it it, it um, disrupts mm-hmm. the town in that way. Well, they you know they make a very a very clear point in the movie that it's mutated to become uh, transmitted in flu like ways. I think that's how they created a, a movie out of this because Ebola in and of itself is is actually you know watching things like the pandemic documentary or whatever on Netflix like. You learn that while Ebola is horrifying and very contagious, it does require direct contact. It is a lot easier to contain because you can determine who has actually come in contact with people um, and they show symptoms much more easily, right? And so the idea that like the that virus mutated to become as contagious as the thing we're dealing with right now makes a perfect movie because that's horrifying. And yet we've learned something we never knew before until a couple weeks ago, which is that human beings are not willing to take something seriously unless their life is at risk. And, you know, even, even Ebola, take it seriously. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, I think if, if, if we saw people dying the way that they die in this movie and, yeah. we, were to- and we were told that it's as contagious as what we're experiencing right now, um, I don't even know. I mean, you think about some of the things we've learned in the last couple of weeks and how that would have affected a movie like Outbreak and telling the story. I mean, I think it would have it would have immediately expanded its story in a bigger way, more globally or more at least in a, the bigger picture. Right. Where you'd have people killing themselves to avoid dying from this virus. You'd have people Maybe. Uh, you'd have massive riots. I mean, you'd have the world would crumble to bits in a super fast way. And. That's if a town in America had it, because we'd be wondering how else we get it. And 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 also in the movie, it, it there's a picture of Bill Clinton on the wall, right, at one point, and they never show the president so that they can say Bill Clinton is the president in the movie, but that we don't have to like use Bill Clinton. And rather than having some actor play the president and give a speech, they let the vice president go on a huge rant and scream at people and say, if we go down, you go down, we all go down. And it's like, this is very, this is where it's becoming like a movie. Like, there's no way that everybody in that room isn't just now learning about how this works. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it, it's a really interesting movie because it does, it, it, it teeters between, you, you sit here on the couch today and you watch and you're like, oh, wow, that's like what's happening right now. And then the very next scene is some dramatic, like, military chase. And then the scene after that is, it's airborne. And then the scene after that is, uh, you know, the Crimson Tide scene where Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman are screaming at each other about whether or not to start the war. And, 
it, it's just a, it's a really interesting balance. Only only a guy like Wolfgang Peterson could make a movie like this. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, I I'm always intrigued by how he makes such grand movies. Um, you know, I, I do want to bring up something about this movie that every time I, I the time between watching this movie, I always forget that. Outbreak has one of the most effective and best tracking shots in movie history. Like Outbreak what? does what? Yeah, when when I I, I posted at the it beginning on, on my thread. Yeah, in the beginning, the 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 sequence where the opening credits are rolling and they're going through. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're going through the infectious disease research facility. It's all one tracking shot going through each of the levels of the biosafety hazards. And showing what each level is and how dangerous the things are. And then, you know, they sneak a little cut in there by getting real close to a guy walking through the door to then the, like, much more secure facility. But it's all one shot. And James Newton Howard's music is really sort of, like, just keeping you going a little bit and adds to the mystery and the intrigue and the sort of fear of it all. But, like... This sets the tone, not only for this movie is it great, because it sets the whole tone for like, oh, you know, all these diseases that you're terrified of, they aren't even as bad as the one we're about to deal with. Yeah, and then, true, true. And then on top of it, it's just like really creative. I mean, they built obviously two massive sets and just had a steady cam walk through the whole thing. And there's like hundreds of actors and they're all timing it out perfectly. And it ends with the perfect, like the first line of the movie outside of the, the prologue of... Uh, Dustin Hoffman asking his, you know, what we'll soon to discover ex-wife, uh, Rene Russo, <laughs> this is your last day, huh? <laughs> it's such a classic, yeah. like, that's the shit you only see in cop movies too, right? Where the, the opening of the movie establishes that somebody's about to retire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, but that's also like 90s, man. I, we, I, we don't really have that anymore. <laughs> it is um, and I, I, when I rewatched that again, I was, I was, as soon as it started this time, I, I, it hit me that I had never realized that that was one long take. I think as a kid, you're just kind of um, uh, doing two things. One, I was watching the credits because you're half interested in the credits. And then two, you're like interested also in the, in the um, as you said, the diseases, uh, uh, what is it, subtitle? So you're like, oh, this is interesting. Oh, here we are. And then I'm like trying to figure out like, oh, what are the differences in containments and what do they need to do? So I'm, I'm thinking about all these other things, not realizing that it is just one long take. And this time I was like, oh my God, this is so cool. And it's also this classical thing which filmmakers love to do, which is to open with a one long take sequence. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, okay, it's a little cliche, but it's well done cliche. And the other thing is that that scene, I think, I'm guessing, I don't know for sure, but I think it's uh, Wolfgang's reference to the Andromeda strain. Because in the Andromeda strain... Um, there's a moment where it's like halfway through once they get to the secret laboratory where they have to study the virus, uh, they go down into the laboratory and it's progressive. It's like a 10, 15 minute sequence, I think, where they progressively go through the same four to five levels of containment that you see at the CDC in the opening of Outbreak. And it's, it's kind of similar to this where it just follows them along as they go deeper and deeper into the containment levels. And I thought like, oh, this must be him kind of nodding at Andromeda strain is like, oh, look, it... I'm doing the same kind of sequence of taking you through the different levels so you understand, as you said, how how scary and frightening these viruses are um, and, and the the depth we go into it. And the, the other thing you were mentioning, Mike, I wanted to, to, to point out too is how, how great that there is a plot point in the movie about how quickly the virus kills people, which I thought was fascinating because there's the moment where they're talking about it and they're like, 
this virus can't spread that quickly because by the time someone catches it, they're dead before they can spread it to someone else. And that's like, that's actually, uh, they were saying it in a very horribly um, dark <laughs> yeah. way. They were like, it's it's basically the opposite of what we're dealing with now in the real world. It's like, if it, this were quicker, maybe it wouldn't spread as much, but because it's not, and because it's not as noticeable, it isn't. But in this movie, they're like, yeah, whatever, they die so quick that it'll help contain the virus. And I'm like, wow, I can't believe that's, again, I can't believe that they actually included that as like a scientific plot point that becomes a reference throughout the film as to how it works. And um, even the moment, uh, to, ju- to jump ahead, the, the moment where um they're they're collecting people from their homes in cedar creek and there's like that one wife who's like super sad and uh that's sad yeah (laughs) they they do the walk yeah and it's just it was like uh it's like a horrifying moment but you're also like this is this is how fast they have to move on this is basically like get the wife away from the husband and kids before the husband and kids get it and just get everyone out of there quickly because that's the quickest way you can do it. But at the same time, then it's then it's airborne, and you're like, "What do we do now?" <laughs> um, yeah. Well, it's it, it's interesting. It's interesting how they handle um, the impending doom of everything in that movie, and it, it's 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 pretty crazy. And, it, and I do think that if you were to make that same movie today, it would be wildly different. That's just what's interesting about the way that they handle it. And and it's still highly entertaining for a number of reasons that are pretty obvious um, because it, it was made as a movie to entertain uh, and be exciting, first and foremost, not a movie in which they say, check out this cool science. But they yeah. still throw in some of that cool science. I mean, like, you know, it's funny. I moved into this house that I mentioned and the wood floors have, you know, like they're very clean and everything's great, but there is like this weird, very small little, um, I want to say maybe it's a piece of like clothing fabric or something that got, um, covered with whatever you put on wood floors to make it finished, finish, I guess. And, uh, (laughs) and it, it is shaped the exact same way as the Ebola strain from the movie outbreak. And we moved in before all this happened. I was like, that's the outbreak strain. <laughs> it's a joke. And, and of course, now it's not funny anymore. But it was, uh, it, it just, this movie has always been a part of my lexicon. Like, it's just been a part of my brain. It's infected me in its own way. <laughs> I will never break from that. Yeah. And yeah. I love movies like that. And it's funny how so many of those movies are late 90s movies. Like, mid-late 90s are where... And, and of course, it's probably as simple as you remember fondly, most fondly, the movies that you grew up with, right? Like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was I was born in '85, so by mid '90s, I'm, you know, I'm I'm 10, going on uh, 15, at right. the end of the '90s. Like, like that's I feel like when I learned about all my favorite movies and. Then I then you start rewatching them and then you start loving them and you really like over the course of the next five to ten years is when you start to figure out the movies you love. Like I don't I'm sure I didn't see Outbreak in theaters. I don't I don't know. But I know yeah, that I've seen it a hundred times. Yeah, I would not I want to same imagine way. seeing that movie in a movie theater and then watching that movie theater scene happen. <laughs> I can't is- imagine that. Yeah, that that scene and the the uh, airborne scene were the ultimate 
before contagion they were the ultimate like scare you shitless about how quickly this can spread scenes and you said it i think on twitter like that movie theater scene is the ultimate like oh my god you know it's just horrifying <laughs> i know what you mean like i don't, i would not want to see this in a theater now but um <laughs> i guess you're supposed to think oh well it's on my theater but then you're like wait this is a generalized thing you hear one the- person cough after that <laughs> yeah which is the truth about I hate to say all bacteria and viruses on this planet and and funguses and everything else that can get into our bodies is that there's a, a shitload of stuff that we can't see or sense that is all around us constantly. <laughs> and that we can't, <laughs> we have no idea about any of it. And that's actually what scares me about, and I hate to get all real for a second, but that's what scares me about uh, the coronavirus is that walking around, like you have no way to identify if you're walking into a cloud of someone's sneeze because you just can't see it. And it's just an impossible thing to tell. And yeah, we're we're doing these very generic, like, stay five feet away from each other things, which is, yeah, it's like, okay, it's a measurement based on some scientific thing. But also, you still just don't know. And you still just don't know what you, you just, you just don't know what you're walking into or not. And, and um, I think that is the movie theater scene's great horror is that it follows it literally into someone else's mouth. And you're like, oh, my God, we're all breathing this shit. <laughs> we're all going to yeah. die. And that's the, uh, the tagline. Try to remain calm. Too bad. <laughs> well, I think at the end of the day, when you watch movies like Contagion, Outbreak, Andromeda Strain, I think the, the constant is that we're not, you know, we are now in the 21st century stricken with an abundance of knowledge. You were not going to get surprised by much these days. Um, it's the response that is the wild card. It's the way that we handle things that we already know exist as the wild card, because we assume we know everything. We assume that we know how every virus works. And yet here we are. You know, there were probably a lot of experts that said, look, we've seen this before. SARS this uh, you know, H1N1 that they're deadly, they're scary, but they pop up every few years and then, you know, some people die and it's sad and, and, and then they go away. Um, and then you confront something like this, that's novel, right? That's never been seen before. And it's going to require six to 12 months to figure out how to properly vaccinate for it. And, and like, you know, it's killing people, but it's not Ebola. It's not, uh, you know, it's, it's not, it's not the movie version of this story. And yet you see what it's capable of doing. What's scary is the unknown now, is knowing that as we move forward as a species and uh, you know we do what we're doing and continue to do it, that we're only asking for it to get worse. And we're only asking for something worse to happen. Like, it seems at this point that medicine in the world has advanced to a level at which the really terrifying ones like Ebola can be seen, identified and contained very quickly. But we now also see just how easy it is to traverse the globe, like how fast uh, we are at at getting from a small, it's not really that small, but a, a town in China to, you know, middle America. And our ability to just traverse the globes as fast as as fast as we do is is terrifying. Like that's what's scary is how easily we have taken over this planet, and how little we plan to do anything in return. And so, like a lot of people, I've seen you say it too. You know, we should learn 
from this experience and start tackling climate change this way you know oh yeah <laughs> yeah yeah you know italy or china like when china you know went on lockdown the carbon the carbon readings you know the, the dioxide readings were like gone air pollution was like gone and then just this week when they put things back in motion to get world their world turning again skyrocketed like for the people who don't believe this shit maybe some silver lining is that now they'll actually see hard data because yeah. you couldn't ask the world to stop even for one day you know you just can't that the world doesn't stop it keeps spinning and they don't listen <laughs> right they won't listen it, to being it, told it, to stop no it's too big there are too many people the world spins and we do with it and you can't stop it and the only thing that was able to stop it is this virus now some people are like oh well that's the Earth's way of telling us to slow down and give it a breath. And I'm like, the world doesn't fucking know that we're going to stop. The world must have assumed, Mother Nature, whatever you want to call it, God, whatever, must assume. <laughs> can, can at this point, I mean, it must, the, the, the forces that be must have assumed, given the history, that we won't slow down, that we won't stop, that if they kill thousands or millions of people that we're not gonna just stay in our homes and not use our cars and not destroy the planet as we have been. And yet here we are doing it because we care more about ourselves than we do, you know, the earth. And it's very interesting. It's just really fascinating. And unfortunately things don't work in a two hour time span like a movie. So we're gonna have to wait probably five, 10, maybe even 20 years to, to be able to look back and say how this has affected our way of life. Yeah, yeah, I understand. I think the, the best reference in Outbreak for this was the moment where the military rolls in and kind of clamps things down on Cedar Creek, which is much more scarier to watch now. Mm -hmm. um, in that, like, uh, it, it really riled me in the way that we are now quarantined individually in that they could exert these kind of force and control over us, but they don't have, the, I guess, the resources or the ability. But that it's much more dramatically shown in this movie in a militaristic Hollywood way, and that that reference is what we're dealing with now. And like a, and like a holy shit, this is the only way to contain a virus, kind of thing, yeah. is to like literally put a circle around a town and make sure no one comes in or out, and that's it. Mm -hmm. And you, you see how quickly the town disintegrates and goes crazy. Um, and it's kind of like you can replicate that on a world scale. And it's, it's truly frightening. But also um, the necessary and, and only way to do contain in this. And I, I mean, that's the other thing is every time I watched this or everything I was watching in this movie, I kept thinking, Man, this is 30 years ago of a movie yet still references what we're dealing with today in, in, a, in a perfectly contextual way um that yes they've been talking about how this is the only way and this is the systems and this is how you do it 30 years ago or even longer since the 60s um and that yeah that this is the system for maintaining and controlling mm -hmm. a virus is that there it, it is people to people well it's what they did with the west african ebola outbreak a couple years ago it's what they did or last year it's a couple years ago and they basically wrapped a big old circle around where it's happening and didn't let anyone out until they they, they stopped it. Um, it's too late for that now with this. And whether it's one, whether China is to blame or Trump is to blame or Mother Nature is to blame, who, who cares? Uh, we're just, we're where we are now. And 
and it's just it's going to be really interesting to see. I, I think you know bringing things back to why we have a podcast being movies. I think it's going to be interesting to see how the world gets back to normal when it gets back to normal. And I think oddly enough, as much as politicians and um, you know boomers <laughs> probably want to say that uh, you know Hollywood is this and that and movies are just movies and people who only watch one movie a year want to downplay it the reality is like one of the chief signals that life is getting back to normal is gonna be movie theater movie theaters opening back up like not not i i I can't think parks sure but like parks aren't necessarily closed um, you know, restaurants are still open. Banks are still open. The, the, the thing that sort of represents us as humanity, uh, our ability to just rest easy, has always been movie theaters. And it's on the only things that have ever stopped that in the past are on a localized scale being, uh, you know, uh, uh, white guys shooting up schools and movie theaters and um, terrorists, you know, t- committing huge atrocities like those have been mankind's own way of shutting down like society norms this is the this is this is now movie theaters are again closing and when they come back open it's like okay we can all convene together as a group yeah because it's just everything is just you can't be in a group right now the world still needs to operate but we can't be in a group And, and that's the sad part is i hate to realize that cinema is a part of that concept you know i guess i guess i lived for so many years thinking that movies were kind of this special outsider thing and maybe festivals helped me feel that way but that ultimately it's the same as all entertainment mediums where uh or all entertainment entertainments <laughs> where everyone has to get together to experience something whether that's a concert or a movie theater or or something like that, and then ultimately that is, and and I wrote an article about it today that was referencing Christopher Nolan's um, uh, article in the Washington Post about how the cinema experience is people coming together, mm-hmm. and that we don't want to lose that idea of, um, uh, yeah, we're all loving watching movies at home, so to say, but at the same time, the the great cinema experience is truly coming together to a cinema to watch something all in the same theater all together in that venue and that hopefully with time and (laughs) dare I drop a a movie nerd thing is that hopefully by the time Tenet comes out we are all back to that ability and normality of going to the cinema because while I'm sure Tenet will be delayed and not released online I don't want to wait for it (laughs) because I want to see it right now Tenet it seems to be the benchmark in that we all hope to God that everything's fine by Tenet. It seems the, the Hollywood studios have delayed almost everything up until Tenet, or up until June or so, and Tenet is mid-July. So um, at the current moment, <laughs> it's looking good, but, um, or I mean, that's the aim. Uh, well, I was yeah. going to ask, what do you think is the first movie that's going to be that thing? Like it's probably going to be like trolls or something stupid. Yeah, but, you know, you know, know, that's what I was because I was looking at the calendar and I was thinking that too. Because right now, um, and this is not based on reality. This is just when I was glancing at the calendar. Right now, the only one that's not gone is Scoob, <laughs> which I'm sure they're going to delay the Scooby Doo animated thing. Uh-huh. Um, and I was thinking to myself, like, or or Wonder Woman if they make it, which is June 5th. If that's the next, you know, all the way through May thing. 
whatever my thought was that whatever it is is going to be a huge cultural moment like the, that's the thing in i know the studio i know that there's someone in the studios who's thinking this who's saying whatever it is when we finally get out we need to play it big because it's going to be big and everyone's going to go there and and kind of embrace each other in the cinema and say we're allowed to be back out here let's go enjoy a movie but there is no actual control on what that will be because not only can people reject a film that they think will play to everyone, but also we have no idea what exact day that will be. And when, you know, if it's, if it's lifted differently in LA than it is in New York, so to say. Um, but it's like, whatever that one movie is. And that's why I, th- I was thinking, I was like, I was man, wouldn't it be hilarious if it was Scooby-Doo, you know, like, wouldn't that be an amazing reference of all of a sudden Scooby-Doo, this movie has a huge cultural reference as becoming the movie we all come together to see or one well, I think or something like that or, or I, I, you know I do still think it'll be tenant I think that the movie theaters will open before that and I don't think that they will ever draw I think it's still going to take some time uh for a lot of people to accept going even if they're open to accept going back to that crowded environment there you need and there ha- it's going to have to be a tentpole it's not going to be a random it's it's just not it's it, i think i think chris nolan's article implies i mean we already know that he's never going to release his movie it's it even if like they say the rest of the year is out like he'll just push it to next year it's not, he's never going to release that movie it's, that would be as unlikely as this virus mutating into ebola uh <laughs> watch what you say mike you never know yeah i i think he know i think he sees Tenet as an opportunity to be the savior of cinema. <laughs> I mean, that people will go out and people will see this movie in droves and it will be the first billion dollar movie post, uh, you know, I don't think it, I mean, I think that's a stretch, but it might be first billion dollar. I don't think we're going to see people going to the movie theaters that fast, though. That's what well, I it think. it depends on if there's a vaccine and if there's a, a control over it that is... Yeah, but people are just people, you know. They're just afraid of what they don't know, and they assume they know that they don't know. Yeah, <laughs> but my point is that there's a, enough major summer movies that come before Tenet that it, that unless everything until Tenet is delayed, that it's not going to be it. For example, not only Wonder Woman, um, but uh, the new Candyman. Not to say that that will be a temple, but there's the Pixar movie Soul, which looks amazing. And then, of course, there's Top Gun, which looks amazing. And then there's In the Heights, which is the Lin-Manuel Miranda musical, which looks amazing. And then there's yeah. Ghostbusters Afterlife, which, despite the controversy around it being, you know, throwing out the 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 uh, all-women Ghostbusters movie, it can also be a major moment. And then Tenet comes out. Yeah. Um, and then Jungle Cruise comes out a week after Tenet. So there's there's enough handful of other movies that could hit big like i could see I, I i'm actually not a top gun hater i love the original top gun so i could easily see something like top gun maverick just being the the like sit down and have an experience on the big screen kind of thing everyone comes and enjoys and it's what i don't like about it is it's the typical um hand feed the masses more old ips that they're comfortable with kind of thing um, and that it is the same thing that Hollywood has been doing all over now, which is just this, repeating the same crap. But at the same time, I'm like, man, it's freaking Top Gun, and it looks great, and, and it's 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 also aside from Tenet, the definition of a, a big screen experience. You know, shot literally with IMAX cameras in the cockpit of fighter jets. That's the kind of thing people will say, hey, I can watch that at home. But you know, what would make a difference is to go see that at the cinema. 
Yeah, I, I think you know we're giving movies a lot of credit, and I hope that they that it feels like there's a watershed moment, and it comes from movies. I I think, uh, I, I think that beaches think, are the watershed thing. Beach, like, come on, <laughs> I I think the moment I think the moment is gonna be. Let's hope. Uh, sorry to show my political colors here. Is that Trump is is in November? Trump loses, and we all march the streets together, less than six feet apart, like in America. And that is a hopefully a big global moment too, because I think everybody on the fucking planet hates this guy. But that, that I that might be the moment where we realize we're out of it. Is is hoping hopefully when he loses this election and we we all agree that like we 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 won we beat something that was bad in this world. So I know I'm not supposed to do that on movie podcasts, but I did it. Sorry. Well, we just lost all our listeners. Um, no, I, I I just want to to cycle back around uh, to outbreak. <laughs> Before before we lose everyone completely, because the only other thing I really wanted to mention um, was how much I love Dustin Hoffman's performance in this movie. Yes, um, and it, it is, and I know he's an icon with a great filmography of many classics. But to me, it's one of my all-time favorite Hoffman performances. And maybe it is just because, as you said earlier, Mike, I grew up watching it, and it just hit all the right notes to me as like a Hollywood junkie as a kid. But also, he just plays it so well. And he plays every moment. Like, I didn't even realize, I guess I had just totally forgotten the whole divorce angle <laughs> this, until I was rewatching it this time. And I was like, oh, yeah, he has to deal with the whole divorce thing, too. Um, and then on top of that, all of his just like pissed offness at the world combined with, you know, the scientific reasoning of his mind trying to be like, I fucking hate everyone, but also I'm trying to save everyone. You know, he just he just balances that in such a smart way, and just like, I, I like you said, there are just moments that I've never forgotten about his inflection in his delivery, and the airborne moment being one of them, and just his the way his his like muted anger. He's not like full anger, but he's got the anger in him in a lot of scenes when he's just yelling at people, mm-hmm. um, and it's just just really, well, he's, really um... one of my favorites. There's, I really like the scene when he's talking to the little girl too, when yeah. he's like trying to calm her down and and tell her it's gonna be okay, and even makes like a big no a, a joke about having a big nose. I mean, like he's uh he's always been one of the great actors, a period. Um, and you just I just think it's easy to sell him short on this performance with given the other ones he's done in his career. Yeah, exactly. But, but man, he just holds this whole thing together. It is driven by his energy, his like desperation, and and, and that like without it, I don't know. I don't know what kind of movie you have. Um, and it makes guys like Morgan Freeman, Donald Sutherland, Kevin Spacey, Rene Russo, they're just they're just on they're just like following in his lead. So that should be enough to tell you just how powerful a performance he's giving. Yeah. That everybody knows to just sort of step back and, and and let him shine. Yeah, even Nolan agrees. Nolan's barking in agreement with you. Yeah, that's Norman. Nolan's <laughs> oh, sorry. on the couch next to me. He's very Norman. Very Norman peaceful. agrees. 
Norman has now experienced it as a young pup, and he's like, "Woof, woof!" I agree about Michael uh, Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. Um, and the other, the other performance that I have to single out, as I already messaged you about, was how much I absolutely hate Donald Sutherland in this movie. And as a kid, uh, I don't know when it when this happened, but as a kid growing up, um, I never really realized that the reason I hate people is because they're giving a great performance as a shitty person. <laughs> and, and only later in life did I have that click realization in my mind that like I can't hate the person because I'm only hating the character. But I think for many years, this was one of the reasons I just didn't give a shit about Donald Sutherland because I absolutely despised his slimy, shitty ways so much in this movie. <laughs> and it just is like, I just hate him. But that's that's a means it's a great performance. That means he's he's nailing that shittiness in the way that uh, he's got to embody it and never flinch in yep. being that way. Um, totally. And it's just, ugh, it's a, it's such a, like, piss me off performance. But again, that's the point. You, you gotta, he's the villain of the movie, so to say. Totally. Uh, Absolutely. And yeah, I don't know. Outbreak is just, uh, it was a satisfying watch. I, I can't, I can't say I was, I, I actually looked at a bunch of Letterboxd ratings that people have given recently because everyone's watching it recently. And everyone gave it, like, low ratings. And I'm thinking, like, yeah, I get it. It's too Hollywoody for people to enjoy now. But when I rewatched it, I I connected back to that former growing up feeling of like, yeah, there's a reason I love this. And it is scientifically legit for most of it. Um and it's just a great thriller. It just it just pulls itself along and you know, works well keeping you on the edge of your seat. Yeah. And it's the it's the best version. I think I said this in my letterboxed response when I wrote about it this week was that it's the best version of like cheesy Hollywood filmmaking that there can be. Yeah. And, and I love it for that reason because it, it hits all those notes in that like I'm not a film snob. I love cheesy Hollywood filmmaking when it's great. And this is an example of it being just great. You know, I don't care if it's cheesy or whatever. It just works. Yeah. No, it's good. I mean, look, I love the movie. I, I Anybody who says it's a bad movie is wrong. I don't think anybody, I don't think you can make a case for it being Said a bad by movie. Mike here. I think you can make a case for not liking the way things happen, maybe, but like, you, you know, you just back off if you don't like this movie. I think that right now, I, I just, I, I love when I get a chance, going full circle a little bit here, I love when something happens in the news something that everybody is aware of and then there's always like a movie that we sort of identify with that thing and we're all watching it and then we all yeah. get to talk about it again and that's also why i love movies you know a movie that came out in 1998 is suddenly as relevant as ever um i mean even contagion is 10 years old but yeah you know the there's going to be some great movie that comes out of this, I'm sure. Um, Non-documentary that's just like, it'll probably be about something else, you know, about some alien invasion or about some some natural disaster. But it'll really be about what we experienced here, right? The lessons that we learned and the things we saw happen. Uh, I'm fascinated. This was a rival. They already made that movie. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I mean, it was. Uh, but 
but I think now seeing what happens on our planet, actually in, in the real world, with the economic breakdown and the social isolations and the this and the that, and I wouldn't be surprised if there's some Hollywood company out there getting their B-roll now, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe. And, but I'm, I'm excited for – I get this little sort of tinge of excitement when things happen about how we get to see – uh, this unfold in cinema, documentary and otherwise, right? Because um, well, there's going to be said, there's going to be a lot of films, but finish finish what you're saying. Yeah, do you think so? Like you know, they make the joke of Corona babies, people who have been having sex and get pregnant during this isolation. Do you think there's going to be uh, like Corona movies where it's not about coronavirus, but it's like the new renaissance of escapism movies, like coming back? Well, maybe. I mean, I was going to say that there are going to be a large number of Corona movies. Like, definitely, I can even see Sundance next year, someone having some indie that's like two people, like a ghost story where two people live in uh, apartments across from each other and are in love and they can't do anything. It's just it's about this, how they, you know, like small scale indies. But in terms of what you're saying, which is like inspired by their current events, sure. Because what, what, what makes this particularly unique more than a lot of other things that have happened in the last 10 years is that it's a global thing is that every almost every country in the world is dealing with it or at least responding to it even if they have zero cases then maybe they're closing their borders anyway and also that it's a long-term thing it's not like some shit goes down for a week and then we're over it like right. even even bad terrorism things are something that happens for a day or maybe two and then we deal with a week of mourning, and then we're already moved on. This is, I don't want to say we're still in the beginning because it's been going since January, but we're we're in the middle of it right now. We're not even close to done, and which sucks because we still have to follow. We, we have no idea how long it will go, I guess is my point. But at the same yeah. time... Because of the globalness and because of the length of it, there's no doubt in my mind that it's going to inspire something. And that there's the main themes of which I think will seep into stories are disconnection, um, you know, the the World War II style, how do you be in love when you can't be with each other kind of theme. Um, and then also just the theme of of quarantine, of isolation and the lack of togetherness, which has been what I'd say the last five years of movies have been about have been togetherness and coming together and supporting each other. And now we're experiencing the theme of literally being unable to do that. Mm -hmm. And then, and then I think third, which is the theme of um, the greater social political implications, like how, uh, and I don't want to get into politics too much here, but, but a theme that is in reality, which I think will seep into movies, which is how quickly a government be can become um, I don't want to say authoritarian, but extremely controlling for the sake of survival. Like within a week's time, a government can not only close its borders, but suddenly demand curfews and shut down entire cities, which is something that for most of us who've lived not in the World War II time thought would never, ever happen in our lifetimes and thought that if it were ever going to happen, there would be such a movement against it that it might not ever happen. And yet we're already literally in it now. It's already happening. We've already gone past that point. So that's going to affect people thinking about how we deal with responses and, and the, the economic implications of everything. And, you know, the, the, you know, I guarantee you we'll probably see more stories and films about 
the workers, the medical workers and the the delivery people and the people just doing basic jobs who are now the heroes of society. Um, and much like Roma, I would say, given a chance to shine because they, they've kind of been at the side and now they're literally heroes. Yeah. Um, and I think those are going to be the kind of themes that we see coming out of this. And the question is that... Um, what will be the first kind of movies we see? You know, will they be serious, dramatic takes on all of this? And then how many years till we start seeing everything? How many years till we start seeing parodies? How many years till we start seeing, like, full-on comedies? How many years till we start seeing, you know, completely different interpretations of what's gone on or alternate history stuff? Or, like, you know, that could be five years till we get to that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Um, the, uh, it's coming. Well, you guys, you guys can listen. You can hear a tweet being made in real time i think the uh like new year's day valentine's day uh mother's day new year's eve whatever it's called those movies uh i think that's the way you you, you handle this if i were picking one way of telling this story uh, you know i think you 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 now have this global uh community right everybody everybody understands the global language of the quarantine and you can have you know and you can have vignetted stories of things that happened during the quarantine which was like you know an american story or a you know a chinese story and an italian story and just have this sort of like love this paris i love you new york i love you Type, type thing where they're oh, all it's so cheesy yeah yeah i mean cheesy is what we're gonna need i think unfortunately I, <laughs> I we're gonna so. get some really good powerful movies but i think we're gonna need we're gonna get some cheesy movies i think that's when you look at the history of cinema and you you sort of see the track record uh after times of great distress is when we tend to get the best comedies and yeah, that's what I'm saying. When are we going to see a parody? I guess it's too, I, I don't too think soon parody, now. But... I don't know parody, right? I don't, I don't know. What, is a, <laughs> what do you mean? What would a parody look like of this? Well, I just mean like a comedy about getting sick. and I, We can't talk about it now because someone's going to be upset that I'm even saying oh. this. But just the, just the idea that, um, like, like, for example, I always think of Spaceballs as a beautiful reference. How long did it take? Uh, Spaceballs or some other Spaceballs related movie to be made after Star Wars. It's like Star Wars, and this was what in the 80s. Just, yeah. The movie needs to come out, it needs to be a cultural thing. And then a couple months later, or a couple years later in the 80s, they've been able to interpret that culture and turn it into something comedy wise. But um, you look at the, uh, and I, I've wanted to talk about this, but I won't go on, but The Lovebirds. Which is, uh, it was going to open in April and they delayed it, but it's this Kumail Nanjiani film with um, I forget who he co-stars with. Uh, and uh, it is, as far as I can tell, unless I'm wrong, which I don't think I am, it is basically a parody of Qu uh, Queen and Slim. It's straight up them mocking and riffing on Queen and Slim. Which is, I'm like, this movie didn't even, this movie barely came out in November. It barely had a blip on the cultural radar. I think it only made like 30 million or something like that. Which means that this this Lovebirds movie had to have been in the works way before because they filmed it before uh, Queen and Slim was even released. Well, is it a parody yeah, they of Queen and have... Slim or is it a parody of Bonnie and Clyde? No, it's a, it's a uh, it's a Queen and Slim parody. Like basically, and again, I don't you know I'm reading into the trailer. I haven't seen it, but basically, 
uh, a couple gets uh, in trouble because they get into an accident where they accidentally, in this movie it's an accident, they accidentally kill a guy. And then they get framed for their murder, and then they go on the run as a new couple dealing with on the run as, which I guess you could say is a Bonnie and Clyde bird. But it's, it, to me, it seems like, a oh, hey, they saw Queen and Slim coming up, and they're like, let's make a comedy version of it. And this is what they already made within six months of Queen and Slim coming out. Mm. Um, and so to me, that's the way Hollywood works now. Is they work super fast. So like we, my point is that, um, like you're saying, there's going to be comedies that are the way we deal with things. How soon are we going to see these now? Uh, I, 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 that was just my thought. I don't really know because we're still in the middle of everything. Right now, there's nothing that anyone can do anyway. All the production is shot down. Uh, shut down. And I mean, I'm also very curious, not to change topics, but I'm very curious about um, I'm not truly worried, but the idea that uh, people are saying that because all the production is shut down, there's going to be a shortage of content some point in the future. People are saying like 2021 or something, they'll suddenly not have it. I know that the studios are good enough to figure out how to, how to place things in a way that it doesn't seem that way. But it's like, let's say every major Hollywood production that was shooting in March is now stopped and everything that was going to shoot in April or May has now stopped. There's now a three to four month chunk of time which everything has stopped, which also changes future production schedules. So, you know, the actor who is going to do this and then move into something in May can no longer do that because everything has stopped. Mm-hmm. It's going to be, man, it's going to be interesting. <laughs> I, Wild time. Hard, hard to live it in real time. It's really weird to live it in real time and also see it from outside. Um, it's going to take uh, the film industry's fucked. I mean, not I know. Totally, not totally. It, it, no, no, no. Nothing is totally fucked. I mean, individuals are totally fucked. Uh, you know, but like corporate entities and Hollywood as an industry is not fucked. Uh, but like, you know, it's gonna have to find out. It's gonna re- have to reinvent itself a little bit. Not because of fear of going to the movie theaters uh, or you know, that will pass. Um, you know, but but in terms of just what stories people want to hear, like this cinema has always been at its best a proactive narrative medium, right? It's not usually reacting to the times. It actually dictates the times more now than ever. I think the movies do look at society and say, oh, what's interesting to people today? But then if you really look at it from a macro perspective, it's like most of the things we do are because of movies. Like the way we live our lives is because of what we see on TV and in the movie theaters. It's just happening on a much more subtle and hard to see scale. And, and, and think when you think about science more than anything, like Spielberg is probably responsible for more innovation than fucking Henry Ford. Just because people watch movies and then they go want to do this thing. They want to do this thing that's impossible that only the movies can come up with and they fucking do it. And so when I think about what movies will do and how they will react, but also guide us i think i'm excited to see how it changes in terms of what stories it prioritizes i I, we're already on a trend of seeing movies prioritize lower budgets it started it it started a couple years ago like it's it's happening and getting back to that that really great little like niche of doing 40 50 million dollar movies making a killing in the box office but just 
making good movies. And I guess that's because of the Netflixes of the world, that while they have unlimited budgets, uh, now the big budget filmmakers are going to the Netflixes to make their big budget movies, and the studios are trying to lure in the, the, uh, the creatives who want to make the $40, $50 million movie that's still a good budget, but it's like always just low enough to force extra creativity. So I, I love I love where movies have been going, and I just hope that that this doesn't destroy that. But I also hope that it maybe even makes it a little stronger, makes them focus on stories that bring us all together. And I don't know. We'll see. I, I think one of the biggest changes now is that they're going to have the data to measure this, and I know Netflix will be the kings of it, but um, they can now literally track what everyone watches and why and on a mass scale can now determine what are the stories people want which is going to suck because then they're just going to repeat that formula but uh that's the scary thing with data is that they can because everyone is literally going to netflix and using streaming all the time they have such fine-tuned measurements of what people are watching that that's going to be their thing i don't think it's the best way to measure what stories people want but it's going to be what they're going to use they're already considering this in Hollywood before it all happened. Um, and that it's going to be also a way to determine success in a more rapid sense other than box office, which I always thought was a faulty measurement. Um, this is quicker. Like you could say, I, you know, I was one of the people who bought The Hunt to watch The Hunt. Yeah, and I, I have that rented and Invisible Man also. And I watched Emma last night. Like I'm going to do all of them. Yeah. Yeah, and the ironic thing to me is that uh, I actually was not allowed to watch The Hunt because it had no release date in Germany. <laughs> so now suddenly I have the ability to watch it when I had no ability to watch it before. There was no press screening. There was no release date set here. Um, and so I like that it changes things on that global scale. Suddenly everyone has access to everything and they can they can decide at their fingertips what they want to watch instead of saying, oh, I need to go have a movie night and take my children out to see a movie, and what do they decide to see? They decide to see an animated movie versus what I want to see that night. But at the same time, um, I don't know if that data is going to play against them because Hollywood loves to look too much into data nowadays and and judge based on those formulas, yeah. which is not always the best thing. Um, yeah, but, but like, I mean, dude, we were... I don't know when it stopped or why it stopped, but for this... Long period of time, you know, companies like Magnolia were leading the charge in having simultaneous releases, digital and in small theaters, right? All these movies, these 10 to $50 million budget movies were being released on demand and in theaters. Not you all had, of them, Mike. Not all. Not all not, of course not all of them. But, you know, a lot. It was the trend. It was growing. And where the hell did that go? Like, we should – that is where we should be. I, I obviously the, the the financial model must have fallen apart. Like it must have been very clear that people were not going to the movies and were buying it at home or the other way around. I don't know what's more profitable actually for these smaller budget movies. I would I would have thought access is king, right? And just putting it in every area possible would be the priority, but like it well, just, this is... I, I was hoping that this would bring that back. I don't think that this kills movie theaters. Like I think it's ridiculous oh, to no, think that somehow movie theaters are going to be the the way of the past ever. Um, they'll always adapt. But I, the idea that we're not putting more movies like see, I think Invisible Man and The Hunt are theater movies, right? They're community movies. You want to watch them with a crowd. But like Emma, 
I watched that last night. I fucking loved it. That is a movie that should be put into everybody's, you know, uh, everybody's house. Everybody should have the ability to watch that movie at home. And they probably will more likely see it and pay for it if they can watch it at home than go to the theater for a movie like that. It's just my opinion. But there's a lot of movies like that. Yeah, I. this is a topic I wish we could save for another podcast sometime. But Because, um, yes, I actually – I'm a big – fan or i don't know what the right word is um supporter of the idea that yes there will be a you uh, movies on in theaters and vod can exist simultaneously that's what i believe in and i uh, the only reason we haven't truly progressed to that point as i'm sure you know mike is that the movie theaters are total assholes and i'm not ashamed <laughs> to to say it they're greedy assholes who have this in, insane insistence on the 90 day theatrical window and it's just, it's like, you know what, up until the 90s, sure, whatever. You know, you're afraid of the internet, you got to enforce it. But nowadays, and I think, I, I don't want to say thank this virus, but I'm I'm glad that this virus is finally forcing them because they literally have no other choice because all the movie theaters are entirely closed in the whole world, but forcing them to confront this in a way where the Hollywood's just like, you know what, fuck it, we have no choice, but we have to put these movies on VOD, and yes, I already read three different articles from uh, different theater chains over the world getting really pissed off at, I think it was Trolls was their big one, uh, being like, oh, how dare they put this on VOD? How dare they do that? It's, and it's just like, get over your fucking selves. Seriously, these cinemas yeah, are so I... stuck up. Get over it. I believe in, there has to be a model that proves this other than the indies doing it already. But I believe that if you released, let's say, I don't want to say Tenet because that's a too big of an example to talk about, but something major like A Quiet Place 2 in cinemas and in VOD, I guarantee you the VOD revenue would be great and the theatrical revenue would be great. I guarantee you. I guarantee you that there would be a large number of people who say, yeah, I can watch it at home, but I would prefer the theater experience. I think the final piece of the puzzle here, and this is, again, a whole other topic, is theaters properly enforcing no talking, no texting, or no phones rules in addition to a cooperative experience. If they can make sure that the theater experience is pure and correct and good, and that's the thing that they need to get over, then I guarantee you people would happily go to the theater over that VOD choice at home. I know I would, but I'm an, obviously an outlier, I, I but think I, I think it would. I think, uh, I think a lot of people are happy to do both. Exactly. That's my point. It's like, okay, yeah, today I don't feel like going. I can watch it at home. But you, but th there there is still that selling point of my little TV here in my living room is nothing compared to the experience of watching it in the theater. Nothing. Right. Even you, Mike, if you have a perfect home theater setup, that doesn't necessarily mean your experience is going to be the same as an actual big movie theater. I'm not talking about the people, but everything about it. No, you're right. Uh, I got a dog. Maybe needs to go out. I got. Uh, I got. I, I got phones. I can use. It's just not the same. Um, I've done my best to replicate it. It's just not the same. But I, um, you know, for me, and I think I speak for most. I think I speak for the vast majority of movie lovers. My preference in a perfect world would be seventy-five percent of the movies I see, new releases, I watch at home. And then the 25% that are big movies, tentpole movies, uh, or soundscape movies, you know, really, really designed to be 
in a dedicated theater. Um, I go to the, I, I go to the theater for, and then the sort of the, the middle bar where give or take the 10, 15 percent, give or take are comedies because comedies yeah. are also something you, you shouldn't watch alone. I mean, they, they can be funny, but you, you shouldn't watch comedies alone. It's just they don't work as yeah. well as they should. Um, but I, I wish I had that choice. I wish I just had that choice because there are so many movies I want to see. And I just can't bring myself to carve a three to four hour window of leaving the house, parking in the garage, getting the possibly eating <laughs> near there, you know, yeah. going to the movie and then coming home for movie X or movie Y. A tenant, like I'm already planning, I've been planning since the first, you know, teaser to be in theaters for that one. But then, you know, like uh, The Hunt, for example, I, I, I just, I really want to see that movie, but I just have no interest in going to the movie theater to see it. I just don't. I feel like I'm too busy. I'm probably not, but I just feel too busy to do that. I do think that the perfect world that I would like to see them get to is like a two-week window. It's saying like Tenet will be available only in theaters for two weeks. Then you have the choice to see it. Because there is there is something special to the exclusivity of it. Like that the only way... It's kind of like a concert. It's like you can't you can watch a concert at home but to have the experience of a concert you literally need to go there and it's it's a special thing to be in that auditorium or in a venue and watch it same thing with the theater i think they need to say it's exclusive but not have a 90 day window mm-hmm. and say hey if you really don't want to go to the theater to see it like you like there's so many things to say oh, i want to go home because what you're saying is exactly what the theaters are scared of mm-hmm. then i think at the end of the day they can say okay well then you have the choice and uh, it, this is the same for I don't want to get too deep into a, someone that's going to kill me but this is the same with piracy a lot of people who are hardcore pirates of media online will say that they will buy the movies that they do love and it's the same thing that I guarantee you if like let's say Tenet came out two weeks later was on VOD uh, for the same kind of thing $20, $30 rental price only rental for, for that price I guarantee you someone would watch it and think this is awesome. I need to go to the cinema and see it properly. And then they would go to the cinema and pay pay for those tickets and make that arrangement. All because they had a chance to see it on VOD first. Yeah. I think that's the perfect world that we can get to. It's just a matter of the theaters letting go of their shit. We're also seeing at the end of the day that uh, the, big, the bigger companies like Disney are buying out the vast majority of theaters to put their movies in. So why not just go all out on that? Like the big, the big, the big studios that want to spend the big bucks and have every theater playing their movies can go ahead and do that and stop wasting space and breath trying to sneak these little indies in and let, let the theaters that focus on indies just do them like landmark, you know, landmark here in Chicago, we have one of those and they pretty much only do the movies that you don't get to see like a hidden life or something. It's like never going to play at, AMC theaters. I'm sure maybe it did, but you know, those kinds of movies that they don't tend to play in the big, big chains. Uh, I know, I know like Landmark is a chain, but it's different. It's a indie theater. So I don't know. I'll be interested to see how this all shakes out. It's a whole nother discussion, which we had a good one now, but I think it was, it's an interesting thing to look at. Yeah. Well, Thank you for listening, whoever made it to the end. I wish everyone a, a yeah. safe and uh, sane and happy time at home. Um, Good luck to everybody. There's billions of movies to watch all the time. That's what I'm doing every day, all day, is just watching tons of stuff. 
I haven't seen, stuff I have seen, and just taking the time to actually watch because normally I'm too damn busy to watch every day, but now I'm just watching something every day. Um, and yeah, and we'll follow up with more discussion soon, hopefully. And uh, yeah, yep. as always, you can find me at First Showing and Mike at Eisenhower Theater. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yep. That's where I'm at right now. Cool. Thanks for listening. See you guys. Bye.